0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Friday, February twelfth, two thousand sixteen, from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and Wolfgang Puck wants to open a restaurant. He's Wolfgang Puck, that's what he does. He has not the most creative name for the restaurant, he wants to call it The Kitchen. The Kitchen by Wolfgang Puck. Now, as you can imagine, there is a potential problem. Because the name The Kitchen is just so damn ingenious. I mean, you can't have a restaurant without a kitchen, am I right? There happens to be another restaurant, actually a mini series of restaurants called The Kitchen. Four restaurants in Chicago and Boulder and a more casual version of The Kitchen. And that kitchen is owned by Kimball Musk, who's Elon Musk's brother. So Kimball Musk is suing Wolfgang Puck to try to get Wolfgang Puck not to name his restaurant the kitchen. Kimball Musk has helpfully suggested that Wolfgang Puck call it Wolfgang Puck's kitchen as opposed to the kitchen by Wolfgang Puck. Wolfgang Puck is not interested in that suggestion. That is terrible, the kitchen by Wolfgang Puck. That stinks Wolfgang Puck's kitchen. I flush that idea down Wolfgang Puck's toilet. That is both my Wolfgang Puck impression and my Werner Herzog impression and any German man whose name begins with W. I will do that impression for him. So my problem with this, with this pretty idiotic story, is the headline. The headline in the Wall Street Journal, the headline was restaurateurs embroiled in trademark beef. It's kind of a pun, maybe a double pun, but there's nothing in the article about beef being A major thing in this kitchen, embroiled in beef, and also it's almost misleading. Sometimes a pun skirts this line. But I think they should think less about that there's a dispute involving food. Think about the names of the principal characters involved. You could have come up with something like Musk's bitchin' over Puck's kitchen. Or Puck Bucks Musk. Or Musk Has Truck With Pucks Pluck. Or Puck Runs muck, Skunks Out of Luck Musk. Or Must brusk Musk Brush Aside Snide Puck. Or how about, you know it depends on having enough room in the journal, but how about something like Musk Puck Kitchen Friction, colon, Hitchin' Puck's plans to christen kitchen won't listen as Musk's not wishing but pitchin' that Puck won't be ditchin' kitchen. I could've gone with that. If you go to the kitchen, by the way, try the chicken. It may not be chicken, it may be pigeon. On the show today, I spiel about a recent cold snap and the revelation that engendered. But first, a favorite actor of mine. He's in a new show called Outsiders. He plays a clan elder with a topknot. What's not to love about another grizzled, principled performance by David Morse? Outsiders is a new series premiering on the cable network WGN America. I know it for Cubs games, or I think they do White Sox now. But anyway, they have a raft of original series, and this is among the most original. So it's the story of some mountain folk who come into contact with modernity and a society that is hostile to them. This, is the end. this mountain don't come free. You do. I pay rent on it.
0: Only our rent, it comes in blood. Then you come up that mountain, you ain't gonna be coming back down alive.
1: And the interesting thing is It combines elements of mythology, but also there are resonances with a lot of issues that are taking place today. Now, to pull this off, you need a great cast, and chief among them is David Morse, who plays Big Foster, who uh, drinks a lot of moonshine and has a top knot and looks intimidating, but is also pretty wise. You know David Morse from St. Elsewhere, and Tremay and The Green Mile, and The Rock, and he was George Washington, so you know him from your money and quarters. (laughs) Hello, David Morse, how are you? I'm good, thank you, how are you? I'm I'm good. So, I've just met you. Mm. I you always seemed large, six four. Mm. How much does actual physical presence you think play into leadership, especially oh, among primitive people?
0: You know, I I did a movie called Crossing Guard. Mm-hmm. Um, Sean Penn movie. What's that? Was that Sean, Sean Penn, Penn, movie? Right yeah. with yeah with Jack Nicholson. And I I had been kind of a certain weight for a lot of my life. You know, you mentioned saying elsewhere. Yeah, I was fairly thin. And that was a role. I tried to put on weight for Indian runner, which I did with him first, Viggo Mortensen. And I unsuccessfully did that, but we figured this guy had been in prison a long time. And uh, he would have been, you know, working out, doing things to defend himself. So I, I worked hard, I ate six meals a day. I put on, you know, 25 pounds of muscle in about three months. I could tell the presence, the difference, over that course of that three months, just how people responded to me. It's a completely chemical thing that happens.
1: That's very pleasing on my part. <laughs> well, there's a weight upon you, too. You have to, to be that guy with that heft. You have to act as if you accept and have earned that and wield that power. You can't shrink away if you're George Washington and a man of that mm-hmm. size and stature in that time yeah. or Big Foster up yeah. on the mountain.
0: Yeah, yeah. George Washington is a great example. You know, I mean, he was a legend, but he also was unique. I mean, there, were, there weren't many men like him in the country. He probably was one of the biggest men in the country. He obviously had something to live up to, and he knew it. I mean, he knew what his image was, aside from what was going on in the country. But he knew what his presence meant to people around
1: him. He truly lived up to that presence. And I think like Big Foster, and I think like even guys like Mike Webster, I mean, I can't think of a role you play that would be described as happy-go-lucky. There is a weight (laughs) to you, even if it's not physical. That's what you bring to roles. But also that's, you know, that's a depth of character that we want to see as an audience.
0: Thanks. It's it's what interests me. It's what I hope is there when we get to do the work. I'm drawn to roles where there's an opportunity for that. I appreciate that if you feel that way.
1: So when I talked about the resonances of the show, is the name of the band of people you're with, is it named? Do, they, do they, They're called Close. the Outsiders?
0: No, and, no, the Feral. It's the, the, the Feral, Feral Clan.
1: The Feral Clan. Yeah. But there's... There's no such actual clan, and it's not strictly based on another clan. But it reminded me of the the Irish travelers, you know, and the Carolinas. But it also reminded me of classic stories of, you know, indigenous peoples in... Uh, all throughout the world in South America where they're being logged and their way of life is being threatened by modernity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You, if you could talk a little bit about the creation of the show and what they were trying to go for, what they were trying to evoke with the Feral Clan.
0: Yeah, when when Peter Matteo originally wrote this, I, I I don't think he really, and he will admit it, he didn't think a lot about... Who these people were? He had an idea, mm-hmm. you know. He had something that sort of came to him impulsively, you know. And I've said this before. He almost wrote it stream of conscious, and he thought, "Wow, this is kind of cool," you know. These people, and he said, "Nobody is ever going to do this." And somehow, Paul Giamatti got a hold of it, and agents got a hold of it, and WGN got a hold of it, and they said, "We're going to do this as a series." And He was like, "Oh my gosh! Now what the heck do we do?" It's like now, how do we? From this thing that I sort of wrote for my subconscious, how do we now create something out of that yeah and and you know that's a tricky thing it's tricky for all of us to say yes to because you know you're setting yourself up possibly to really stink, yeah um. And, and take some criticism for it. But at the same time, there's the other side of it, which is, this might be a real ball, trying to figure out who these people are and what the mythology is, and it's not what we've seen up there before. You know, there are ideas of what we have of mountain people, and these fulfill some of that, but not. this is a new new group of people.
1: What role do you, as the actor and the other actors, have in creating the backstory, the mythology of the clan, fleshing them out as real? If you do a doctor show like saying elsewhere, even though it was a, a unique show, mm-hmm.
0: it's familiar territory. Yeah, and the the writers, you know, they take some of what you do, mostly the stuff you wish they wouldn't take from you, and and use it against you, your vulnerabilities, and make fun of you. And that's not a whole lot of fun. But you know, most of the time, you don't have a lot of input in this one, because all the writers really had disappeared before we started shooting. They wrote it way before we started shooting. And there were these scripts. And once we started really creating this world, it was not the same as what they wrote. Mm -hmm. And the actors got drawn more and more into the actual creation of these characters and uh, the rituals. You know, there's weddings and things in this, you know, which are different than the weddings that we'd normally see. And we had to kind of figure that out when we got
1: there. Yeah, yeah, because writers, who knows to what extent they're creating the world. But since the actors have to live it, actors aren't writers, but... like they're more like anthropologists they have to think about the people and what they were really like and maybe the writer isn't coming up with you know their ceremonies but it really does help the actor to say actually this is how we live and this is how we met and this is how we exist as uh real people and no I
0: was say, it's completely helpful and yeah. it, it really bonded us as a group of actors having to go through this process of coming up with like the get get ya yeah thing ryan Which is
1: their yell your rebel yeah, yeah ryan rebel ryan
0: came up with that we The original tattoo artist was a decent tattoo artist, but Ryan looked at it and said, "You know these aren 't telling our story. these tattoos don 't tell a story of these particular people, and we all started getting involved and with him at the heart of it, and these new artists and they became very specific to our world and when you you know how old you were when you got this kind of tattoo and you know
1: what what this animal means for this particular person." So did Paul Giamatti get involved with the show because you knew him from John Adams? Was that a coincidence?
0: Well, it w- was the other way
1: yeah, around. It's yeah. the other way around because
0: we we have the same manager, right? But we also worked on the Negotiator together. We we've known each other for quite a while. I'm a big admirer of his. When when I first heard about it, I was actually being offered it, but almost within the you know first words was Paul was part of the development of this. So of course I wanted to really pay attention to it. And he was he was working at the time. So it wasn't like he could really be there on the set all the time. And I don't think that's really what he ever intended to do. But he's certainly been behind the scenes involved with a lot of the decisions and things.
1: So I want to ask you, if it's okay, a couple other questions about some roles you've played and recently played. Mike Webster in Concussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if you know, I was a sports reporter for I a number of years. I never I never met Mike Webster, but I know the story. And yet I was... Don't take this. You were great. I was disappointed with the film because I thought it was a little movie of the weekish. Just my curiosity is, do you have an extra obligation when you're telling a story that not you as the uh, as the actor, but does the film overall have an extra obligation when it handles a real issue if it, pardon the pun, drops the ball?
0: He of course has a responsibility, and nobody wants to drop the ball, I mean, you know, when when Peter was doing this, he was trying to honor Dr. Amalu's experience, you know, he and his wife, and there were, you know, there are there a lot of people, the criticism was we didn't spend more time with the actual players and football part, the real urgent part of it. Peter felt it was important to show what the effect, the NFL, and the way they treated him, right. what it had on him and his wife, and their story. So I see it both ways. Uh, you know, I'd love it if they spent
1: more time with Mike Webster. Yeah. But and you were he, great as him. And I know him from the League of Denial yeah. documentary. And I know the guys who wrote those books. And Yeah. But then again, that doesn't mean just because the the character is great and you embodied him well, that doesn't mean that that's conflict and drama. That's not that's a story. That's exactly right. Yeah. it's not, And it's tough to make a story. And it's tough to take a real story, which is the concussion story, that's a sprawling morass of a thing that could go. I understand the impetus to put it in this, you know, the narrative, the uh, 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 the tale of a person up against the system. I don't yeah. know if it was execution or conception that, To me, didn't make it. You know, it didn't serve the overall issue. If you know what I mean. I totally get it.
0: First of all, I mean, just Will. I thought Will was wonderful, And and I thought his performance was lovely. You know, we both felt. I mean, he because he had Dr. Amalu there. His responsibility to present the essence of this man, if not literally the man, was really was really at the forefront of everything he was doing. And I felt the same way. You know, Mike was such an important figure. And the city of Pittsburgh and in football itself. And of course, his family who are still here and still love him and loved him and would like to have him honored. So it's a, it's a tricky thing to show him at such a desperate time in his life and honor him at the same time.
1: Do you know if his family took solace, any solace from the movie in your performance? No, nothing about it. Really? Yeah. All right, another question I want to ask. So you've done a lot of work with Sean Penn. He yeah, a great, great filmmaker. He interviewed El Chapo. It did maybe not go well. Is there, <laughs> <laughs> is there an overall issue about, look, you're great at one thing, which is to be this artist? And an artist has to see the world and experience in the world, and I don't, I don't begrudge him that. But is there a lesson about, you know, trying to step outside your comfort zone or, I don't know, a lesson in trying to bite off uh, more than maybe you're able to accomplish?
0: I'm an admirer, of Sean. He has been stepping outside of his comfort zone for a long time. Whether he's doing it as an actor, there are things that he's done in his life that people just don't know. When I met him, uh, when I first did Indian Runner, he was one of the biggest movie stars in the world. He'd been in jail, you know, for hitting people and violating parole and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, he was one of the most enthusiastic, boyish in a way, loyal guys I had ever met. And he fought for me like crazy to do the two movies I did with him, Indian Running and Crossing Guard. So I, I'm the bene, you know, the beneficiary. Yeah. Of that part of his
1: personality, that passion, the same passion yeah. that led him to say, "I'm going to tackle El Chapo." That's exactly mean, right. Means he goes to bat for you.
0: Yeah, he goes to bat for me and other other friends as, as well. I can look at him and say, "What the heck are you doing down in Venezuela <laughs> talking to, you know, Chavez or, you know, what what are you thinking?" But at the same time, this man is living a very unique life. There's not many people on the planet who are living the life he's living. He's living six months out of the year in Haiti, carrying buckets of cement off of, you know, with, you know off yeah. of piles of cement to put the cement somewhere else and trying to feed people and house people. How many people are doing that? How many actors, never mind actors, but
1: anybody is doing that kind of thing? So... If you just take a cursory glance at so many of the roles you play, they're tied up to issues or an issue. Even a movie like The Green Mile, of course, this touches on the death penalty. And we talked about Mike Webster and concussions and what you're doing here in the new uh, WGN series, Outsiders. Talks about coal mining country and really an American way of life. Are there any Are there any issues that you spend time with in real life that you either— devote time to, or raise money for, or does most of your activism, if there is such a thing, find form in the roles you play? Express itself through art, I guess, is the highfalutin way to say.
0: Well, try to do that, and and privately, there's things we do. I mean, we support children, you know, families and kids in school and uh, different countries and uh, in Philadelphia, you know, just stuff behind the scenes. I wouldn't say there's any one thing that I do. And if people ask me to do something, I try to give myself to do it. I I can't always do it, but I try to be thoughtful and
1: and a good person. Yeah. You are the father of our country. We owe you a Uh, lot. Oh, you're welcome. (laughs) David Morris is starring in Outsiders, which premieres. It's already up on uh, WGN America. Thank you so much, and good to meet you. I'm very happy to meet you. Thank you for this. And now the spiel fur tunnel. Winter. We used to know one thing about winter. It was cold. Sorry, Phoenicians. Sorry, Coral Gabillions. It's not cold for you. And by the way, I, I shouldn't have to apologize, right? We have a deal, you people from Phoenix, right? You sit through our complaints, the rest of America, cold America's complaints, and in exchange, you get warmth. That's what you get. You get the warmth. By the way, warmth. I had an idea recently. You take the tag team hit from 1993, Wump, there it is. and You could license this out to any series of products with a simple change in the word. Heaters, warmth, there it is. Hand warmers, warmth, there it is. An entire metropolitan area. Come to Miami, warmth, there it is. And you know what, speaking of rappers, and this is a sub-digression of a sub-digression, but speaking of rappers, you know how, all musicians, but I really think rappers are really trying to shock. They're always saying, what are you trying to do? I'm trying to shake the listener up and upend expectations. I was driving in my car a couple of days ago, not my car, it's a rental, so I don't really drive that much, but when I do, I think about these things. And you know what a rapper should do, not on his best song or second best song or fourth best song on the album, but he got a lot of songs on an album. He should do a song, a regular song, and then every once in a while have a voice cut in left turn ahead whoa wait what i didn't know i put that right turn in 500 feet just do that will upend expectations that will be shocking that's the idea that i'm giving to you the rap community for free also sub 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 digression i don't really respond to when they say how many feet it's in i don't do that in my head like i just don't know how much 500 feet is when i'm driving i see if it's not grove street it's elm street then it'll be spruce street don't give me the 500 feet all right let's wrap it back up or wrap it back up we did warmth there it is we did phoenicians we're talking about winter it used to be true that the one thing you could say about winter is it's cold but now they've injected all this uncertainty with winter it's kind of annoying we had a recent cold spell then we had some snow just given the state of global warming, you say to yourself, well, maybe that's it. I can't prove that it's not it. There was a time when you knew that it was January, you knew it was February, you had no expectation that it wouldn't be cold. But now it's not. You'd think I wouldn't be complaining, but as anyone who studies the markets will tell you, it's consistency that we crave, right? Whenever there's shattered expectations or whenever there's uncertainty that leads to bad outcomes, such is with the occasional warm spell in winter. So I did what everyone else who lives in a non-Phoenix, non-Coral that City did. I combat it with a coat. I bet you do this too. And here was my take on coats up until this point in my life because I've started to do something else. I thought a coat was just a bunch of layers to keep out the cold. Maybe you could argue also to keep in the warmth, but you just buttress yourself against the cold. Then I became part of a more specific community, a community I never even realized existed until I became a part of it the very furry hood. Now, I just thought this community existed like on the cover of Matthew Sweet albums and on streets, I'd look left and right. But I just thought a very furry hood was just a coat option. It doesn't really change what you were doing with coats, you know, bundling up against the cold. Oh no, oh wrong. Because if a coat is there to keep out the cold, do you know what the big furry hood is? The big furry hood is essentially an alternative ecosystem that invites you inside. Now, it's antisocial, because you can't see out of the big furry hood. I never really realized this until I donned the big furry hood. Visibility is terrible. Hearing is terrible. And you just wind up breathing your own air. So it sort of fogs not only your actual eyesight, but your perception. Also, I do think... Now, let me ask you this. Do you think more people lose stuff in the summer or in the winter? Now, I think most people would say, oh, you lose stuff in the summer because you're wearing shorts, or maybe you're on the beach, swim trunks, you don't have a place to put your wallet, Now, it's because you're wearing shorts that you're very cognizant of your wallet. There's a very thin amount of material. You put your wallet in your pants, you know it's there. In the winter, with all this bulkiness and all this stuff, and then you got the fur hood, which creates essentially a fur tunnel that you're just a part of, you never know where anything is. And this gets me to my big complaint about the fur hood and big puffy coats. They're just so antisocial. Subway crowding goes up exponentially when it's cold. People think it's because of like frozen tracks or because the cold correlates to snow. I disagree. I just think it's the big coats. People don't change their behavior to accommodate the big coats. I'd like to see a study done with people in almost always cold regions, Alaska, Minnesota, up north of the Arctic Circle. Now, it's not so crowded there, so they don't come into contact with other people. But I bet they navigate their space much better than New Yorkers or even Chicagoans when it's really cold, trying to crowd into a space that doesn't really fit. Everyone trying to get into the subway, delays on the subway because everyone's in their own personal fur tunnel. But it's just so antisocial. And then when you layer onto the Fur coat and you inside your fur tunnel. These other antisocial pieces of technology. We're all really screwed. I saw a guy today where we're in one of these big furry hoods. He was looking at his iPhone. So you got to hold that really up in the middle of your face because you can't just look down because, like I said, it obstructs your vision. And he also had one of these roller carts, one of these you know uh, pieces of luggage by hand, and it was crossing the street like this. How is New York City or any major metropolitan center, not just Death Race 2000 when the temperature drops below 20 degrees, people don't put down their iPhones, people have the roller carts, but it's not. I looked up the statistics, in 2014, 132 pedestrians died in traffic accidents, which was the lowest total for a year since the city began keeping statistics. I haven't found out the official 2015 figures for New York City, but the uh, local radio station WNYC says it's actually one fewer, 131. So as we're furring it up and as we're reading our iPhones and as we're crossing the streets like idiots, we're not getting mowed down. And I wonder why. You know what I think the answer is? the ambulances are better. I think it has nothing to do with people not putting themselves in dangerous positions. I think people are probably getting hit at the same rate. It's just that we're saving their lives before they get to the hospital. It's kind of similar to statistics out of Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, Soldiers are getting shot almost as often or a piece of shrapnel going into them. We're just really good at saving their lives. So hooray ambulances, but it tricks us into thinking we're a safer society. I analogize it to something else. Seeing someone looking at an iPhone as they cross the street whether or not they're in a fur tunnel or not you immediately say oh my god that that person's going to buy it but there are so many other dangerous ways of crossing the street or just being a pedestrian that don't strike us as being as dangerous, you know, that everyone stands one step off the curb in New York City. That's But everyone does it. It's That's probably much more dangerous than an iPhone. And just certain crossings are, are just inherently dangerous. They don't leap out to you like, oh, get off your iPhone, mister. But there are just certain street crossings that are crossings of death because of the timing of the light and the nature of traffic. So the analogy I thought of is being overweight right there's this whole debate well it's not about aesthetics and we don't want to judge people but you know it's just that being overweight so poorly relates to health and if you're overweight you put yourself in such a greater risk for whatever it is diabetes or heart disease and that's all true but as much as the risk is people's perception of the risk is even greater because that's such an obvious thing that you see people who are overweight especially if they're not morbidly obese but people who are overweight are a bit more at risk of a lot of these negative health consequences, but not so much that we should fixate on it to the extent we do. And there are plenty of people who don't look overweight at all, and maybe they aren't, who really are at risk. And there are plenty of people who are overweight, especially a bit overweight, as calculated by BMI, who actually aren't in bad health. So it's the thing we see outwardly that we think is the dangerous thing when in fact, dangers may lurk within. These are the sort of thoughts that occur to me as I am ensconced In my hood, trying to think of excellent ideas about how to monetize rap hits of 1993. All I want to do is zoom a zoom zoom and a poom poom. Just shake your rump. Still working on that one. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist. If you thought all this time she was drunk, that's bunk. Help today came from AC Valdez, that hunk. Kristen Meinzer, who was called in at dusk. And Sam Digman. Of all our luck. Steve Lickteig is the executive producer of Slate podcasts. He won't fake the funk. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. He is still stuck on that time I called AC a hunk. The gist. Hope you like the show. But even if you thought it stunk, guess what? No show Monday because of presidents. Andrea, I think we're gonna rope her into hosting on Tuesday. Here, here's the deal. Andrea said, either I get to host or I'm leaving. I said, fine, host. She said, I'm still leaving. It's like Grand Moff Tarkin and Princess Leia. That was far too trusting. And then on Wednesday, I'll be back for another show. Umpera de do Peru, and thanks for listening.